Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today as always... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 2006 film, The Lives of Others. So this story takes place in 1984 in East Germany, the final five years of the Iron Curtain of the East-West German Divide. And our main character is a man named Gerd Wiesler, if I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Wiesler. Wiesler, okay. Yeah. He is head of the Stasi, one of the main members of the Stasi. He's a yeah. surveillance, he does interrogations, and he's also a teacher to recruit future members of the Stasi. And he is, you can see from the beginning, he he is very into his job. He does this interrogation with this guy whose friends defected to the West. Not only is able to basically grill this guy for how, for almost a full day to the point where he just breaks down and cries and finally tells him because he's just mentally and physically exhausted. But he tapes this recording of the interrogation and we see him use it for a class to recruit somebody. And we see how yeah. obsessed he, obsessive he is with his job. One of the students in that class says isn't this inhumane making this guy you know do this for hours and hours on i'm driving him to the point of exhaustion he looks at the attendance in the seating chart he puts a little note down to that guy saying basically saying i'm gonna have to investigate this guy yes and then one of his bosses takes him to a premiere of a play with that the minister is attending and yeah he look- just to be clear it's a culture minister Yes. And this is something that's kind of unique in communist countries. They have these people that are basically in charge of making sure that all deliverances of culture, including plays, which they're going to here, um, toe the line in terms of the uh, orthodox communist um, um, belief system. And yeah. this is the guy, he's in the audience. Yeah, and he shows him the playwright, the writer of the play, and supposedly he's very pro-government. He's always towing the line, like you just said. But Beesler says we should have him monitored and surveilled. Yeah. And- in, in, can I jump in? Oh, sure. it, I love this scene because it's actually Beesler and his immediate supervi- his, his immediate super, superior and Stasi, both of whom are teaching at this basically a university for for the state security apparatus. And we see that earlier when uh, they're discussing this class that he had taught using that that uh, footage of that interrogation. And you see very clearly Wiesler, like you said, is dedicated. He is very dedicated to his job. Well, they're up in a balcony and they're watching this play and they're looking at the playwright. And the guy has quite a reputation. Um, they, you know, It's mentioned that he's actually a respected playwright in the Western world. You know, and that's an indicator that despite the limitations put on uh, his craft, what he can actually write, he's he's written some stuff that is nevertheless still compelling, I guess, from a humanistic perspective in countries outside of the Eastern Bloc. So he and his immediate supervisor looking at him and discussing this and uh, uh, Wiesler uh, says, you know, there's just something about him. I, I suspect this or. I suspect there's something wrong with this guy. And he says, essentially, he needs to be investigated. His superior says, oh, no, no, yeah, he's, he's a good off. guy and so forth. And then he goes down to talk to that culture minister. 
Yes. And the culture minister points at the points at this author, this playwright, and says, "What do you think of this guy?" And this the man changes his tone because he sees he reads off of the culture minister that he's suspicious of him too. So he just completely changes his tune and basically says what Wiesler had said earlier. Idea. Exactly. So you, you see a lot of self-serving, uh, you know, bureaucratic politics here. Yeah. yeah. And as, so Wiesler decides, they go into his house, they bug his house, the neighbor catches them, and he basically says, if you say anything to them, your daughter won't get into that university. Yes. So they set it up, and it's, but as it starts going along, he starts not only questioning the what's really the purpose of this um, surveillance, because we later find out that the minister is sort of forcing a relationship with this actress that Draymond, the writer, is dating. She's either living yeah. together. She's actually she starred in the film or film the sorry play, yeah. the play that they had uh, been watching, which is apparently. Uh, from the looks at looks of it, you know, a pretty standard fare for communist plays. It's you know showing these working class people and they're kind of rebelling against the bourgeois, you know, capitalists or something in the stage play, right? Um, but they they see that he's got a, a, this is his girlfriend, the playwright's girlfriend, yeah. and um, um, you're right. The culture minister basically wants to get the playwright out of the way. So that he can uh, claim the girlfriend completely for his own. But we see, you know, just as they're starting this surveillance, they've totally bugged the apartment. Um, and Wiesler is in an empty space in an attic in the, in the big apartment complex. And he's listening there, right? But uh, he sees relatively early on that uh, the culture minister is dropping this actress off at night after they've had trysts. Yeah, yeah, and he's looking. So the surveillance is just an excuse for the minister to get that writer out of the way, so he can claim her as his own. And that's when thing when Wiesler, this diehard Stasi, starts questioning everything, and he starts sympathizing after listening to them almost every day, sympathizing with Draymond and the actress. Yeah, like she's about to go on and have another meeting with the minister and he talks her out of it and she runs back into Draymond's arms as Draymond just confronted her because he figured things out. Yeah. And we have to point out yeah. that the reason Draymond uh, realizes this is because Wiesler yeah. has hot-wired uh, the so buzzer. goes out the, to open he, the door and he sees right. her getting dropped off. Yes. And not only does that happen, but we forgot to mention that he is friends with a play director. And this play director was blacklisted by the government. Yes. And the, because of this, the director becomes very depressed and eventually ends up killing himself. And that leads Draymond to finally take a stand against no longer toe the line and take a stand. He publishes the problem of suicides in East Germany. And he has right. this secret meeting with a writer from Der Spiegel, which is a West German news magazine, to get it published in the West. Yeah, and he even provides him with the typewriter from the West yes. so it wouldn't be <clears throat> traced. And uh, um, hide, they, they hide it in the apartment. This, this figures very crucially later in the story. Yes, yeah. and so, but he's listening to this. Now, he knows he, he should, you know, if it's according to his job, report this. But yes. now he starts... 
sympathizing with Draymond and starts covering up. He constantly writes no activities. It's nothing. Even when the other guy that always takes in after him for like the night shift or whatever starts, hey, this sounds kind of suspicious. He he talks him out of it. He convinces him that it's nothing. Yeah. And then eventually, they get the wife, the girlfriend to they interrogate her and finally get her to inform on that he he had this typewriter because the thing got published in Der Spiegel and they suspect him. So she rats him out and then she tells him about the typewriter. They investigate his house, but the typewriter isn't there. She runs it a days off and then gets hit by a car and dies. And that yeah. sort of ends this investigation. Wiesler's superior suspects what um, he did, but he can't prove it. So he just says, you're going to be in the mailroom for the rest of your career. Yeah. So it flashes forward four or five years later. The wall has fallen. and Or it's the day it's fallen. The day it's fallen. He, he's in the mailroom, you know, but he walks out knowing what this means. Yeah. And then we also follow later on that um, Draymond, the writer, has now moved on into West Germany. And during a play, that same play we saw, he runs into the minister and he, the minister tells him, you were bugged. Yeah. And that's when Draymond says, well, if they were bugged, how come they didn't do anything to stop me? And he searches public records and he finds out who Wiesler was. And, and he wonders, well, did he do it? Because he realizes he thought it was his, his girlfriend that hid the typewriter. But he, going through the files, he finds when it's the day of that final report that says nothing found. He, there's a little red ink smudge, which is the red ink from that typewriter. And then he, yeah. figure, he finally realizes that what Wiesler, who Wiesler was and what Wiesler did for him. And then it flashes forward. Finally, two years later, Draymond writes the book. Yes. Wiesler sees it, goes into the bookstore, and the, um, the book is dedicated to him. It says his initials that were seen in the report. It says, to this person, a very good man. Yeah, and the very, uh, he buys it, and it has the a great line at the end when the he says, "I want to buy this," and then the the employee says, "Do you want a gift wrapped?" And he says, "No, it's for me." Yeah, and which is a great, it's great. It's line. a fantastic line, and the name of the book is a sonata for a good man, and that figures uh, a nice tie-in to the earlier in the film when Dryman's uh, hosting a, a party. Uh, I think it's a birthday party. I'm not sure. Yeah, his 40th birthday. His 40th birthday, that party. That's right. And uh, uh, that friend of his that will eventually commit suicide gives him a gift, and it's sheet music of of the same title. And he eventually writes this book using that title and uh, dedicates it to who he's figured out actually took the typewriter out, which is which is Wiesler. It highlights, this is the late, this is the mid to late 80s. This is not only signifying the end of the East-West German divide, but also the end of communism. Because one of the things that ran in my mind when I was thinking about this was just two years later, we had Chernobyl, the Chernobyl disaster in the mm -hmm. Soviet Union, and how that really signified the end when people under the Iron Curtain realize that this government is no longer effective and things need to change. So why you said just five years after the events in this film, the wall fell, and just less than a decade after the events in this film, the USSR ended. And what's interesting, as the investigation ends, we see in a magazine that Gorbachev has just been elected yes. president of the Soviet Union. And right. Gorbachev is the one that ended the Soviet Union because he realized that. Yeah, or he certainly, through his glasnost policies, loosened a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it, 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 I think it's uh, really uh, symbolic of that end. I love the scene where uh, the... the 
the workers in the mail room. And what they're doing is they're steaming open people's personal mail mm-hmm. to uh, uh, look for any signs of subversion and people to arrest and or, and or bring in for these uh, interrogations. So he's doing that now, along with other, I would mm-hmm. assume, to be um, demoted agents. And they hear that news and they immediately stop steaming those envelopes open and leave yep. because they recognize the significance of this. And I think they recognize the, the fact that the only thing that held the Soviet Union together and these uh, uh, Eastern Bloc nations was fear, fear of the populace. And the Stasi certainly was uh, instrumental in maintaining that fear and control. Um, so a very powerful film um, in, in portraying that. What's kind of interesting, though, is uh, some people that actually lived through that and the, the amount of control that these states were able to con- uh, uh, exert over their citizens to the point where they would get citizens so fearful for themselves that they would be willing to uh, essentially rat out uh uh, not only neighbors, but sometimes family members, and they would have family members, children, monitoring their parents, for instance, and, and, and expected to turn them in if they voiced opinions that were uh, not properly uh, communistic or too positive with regard to the West. And you talk about the parents. What's interesting in that scene, when early on we see Wiesler going back to his apartment, he's on the elevator, and there's this little kid, and the little kid asks if he's with the Stasi, and he says, "Why, you know, why do you think that?" He says, "Well, my dad says that the Stasi is dangerous and they're scary men, or they do bad things." And because he, at this point he's been so dedicated to his job, he's about to say, "What's the name of your father?" But he stops. He says, yes. "What's the name of your soccer ball?" Because he has the yeah. soccer ball. Because yeah. that's when he starts. You yeah. know, he starts having that change. And we talk about it, some people criticize it. That is one of the criticisms people have with this movie that it's. One of them was Christopher Hine, who was yeah. a German, East German author, and he claims that this movie was based somewhat on his life. He says the film is a fairy tale somewhat because there were no good guys who were under surveillance. Nobody really had a change of heart who yeah. decided to withhold evidence and save somebody from being arrested. He yeah. said even if they tried to do that, they would be arrested themselves because somebody would be checking over their shoulder and it would be revealed exactly. there'd be no way to hide it. So the fact that the fact that maybe this isn't as realistic, do you think it so uh, lessens the quality of the movie or its impact of the story? Uh, no, it, no, I don't think it does at all because I, I still think it as a, a, a very stinging, uh, stinging indictment of the communist system. I got that same impression too as I was watching it you know maybe this is a bit unrealistic in how rapidly Wiesler undergoes this transformation and it seems to be driven not only by the fact that he sees this relationship between Draymond and his wife and his friends uh, and the and these people have these relatively deep connections with each other given their flaws you know and, and tragically we see that flaw with uh, his girlfriend in that for self-preservation purposes, she goes along not only with the affair with the despicable culture minister, but she turns in, informs on uh, her boyfriend, right? So that's quite realistic. That happened frequently in communist countries. Once again, because of fear of 
uh, personal safety. And getting back to the question of Wiesler and how rapidly he does seem to uh, uh, transform, it's driven not only by that, you know, becoming intimately uh, familiar with these people over days and days and days of this surveillance, but it also seems to be brought about by the art they produce and not necessarily uh, art they produce, but art they kind of receive, that gift Mm -hmm. that he receives from his director friend uh, that sonata, he actually sits down and plays it one night on the piano. And this it's a really powerful part of that Beethoven. scene in that film. Um, we, we see Wiesler being carried away by the emotional force of that piece of music. And that seems to reach in and it hits something. And that piece of music, I forget the exact name of it, but it was, I think it's actually called Sonata for a Good Man, yeah. which is what yes. uh, Draymond uh, right was the title of the book he writes at the end. Yes, but they mention this in the movie. But supposedly Lennon heard this song, and he, his comment was, "I can't keep listening to music like this because if I do, I won't be able to basically do what I'm supposed to do, which is the revolution. I, I can't be soft. This music makes me want to be soft and yes. friendly when I have to be, you know, rough and violent and whatnot." Yeah, yeah. And I think and that was the inspiration. Um, the director Florian uh, von Hemmersmark. Mm-hmm. Um, was he said he heard about this and he just says what if somebody just listened to music and li- it had this lessening of their you know, suppose like a Lennon or a we see yeah. Wiesler and yeah. interesting enough the actor of was Wiesler was played by Ulrich Muhey mm-hmm. if I pronounce that right yeah he's an actor he was from East Germany he and he was a guard at the Berlin Wall young when he was very young and later on he became a famous actor and he spoke out against the Stasi during that area and was in, actively involved in help bringing that wall down. So this yeah. is a film that very connects much to him as well. It's true. And uh, if I recall correctly, I also heard about him, uh, a, a true story about him is his either his wife or his girlfriend was also under surveillance with the Stasi. So um, direct personal connection with him there. Uh, again... The, the portrayal of the all, all-encompassing nature of this surveillance state, the security state, uh, they do a good job with that. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a striking contrast for us in the West where uh, you know we have very much a tradition of, of respect for human rights and, and in particular privacy. Um, it's almost as if in that society... Um, the presupposition is that people live with on a day-to-day basis is that you don't expect that your life will be private. And they, they do a very good job of showing that. Yeah, and when we talk about how it wasn't, people say this film wasn't realistic, but that doesn't mean that this movie didn't inspire people in real life for certain political uh, events redoing some research of uh, Edward Snowden the famous uh, leaker for the NSA he said one of the his motives for doing what he did was watching this movie interesting it still hits people even though some people will criticize it for being like a fairy tale yeah and that that's an interesting uh interesting thing you bring up about Snowden um it's interesting that in that what he did is uh, arguably uh uh, a mismatch 
to the to the uh, ethical message I think this this film has, believe it or not. Um, what he did in, in the case of the NSA, he was actually a contractor for the NSA working with Booz Hamilton. And he became concerned with some of the surveillance practices that the U.S. Uh, was using in, the, in counter-terror operations. So he decided he would leak uh, documents detailing in the quite great deal of detail uh, the operations of the NSA, not only the contents of the surveillance, but how they do their work. In addition to that, he also divulged a great many uh, very sensitive uh, documents having to do with military operations. So a lot of people will say, yeah, okay, you know, you, you had uh, concerns for what the NSA does and its job and decided to do this, but literally millions of documents were leaked by you that uh, did uh, across um, different administrations, everybody came to the same conclusion that, that looked at it. What he, did, what he did had grave repercussions for the security of the West. Canada thought so as well. Britain thought so as well. So that leads to an interesting question about, you know, what, what the appropriate thing to do for you is if you work for an oper uh, uh, organization like this, a security organization, be it one in the West, the CIA or the NSA, or be it one in the East, uh, when you um, feel that the organization is doing things, uh, you know, overstepping moral bounds or legal bounds or both. Interesting thing about the West as opposed to the, to the uh, communist bloc at that time is that there are Procedures set in place, whistleblower procedures and laws that are set in place that allow people to take steps either directly within the organization or outside of the organization, but still within the government to address these concerns to people in authority. He didn't do that. He did not follow the traditional the, the prescribed route for whistleblowers. Ended up releasing a great many things, not just the things he was concerned with. And given the nature of our state, our government, as opposed to something like the East German government, that's an unforg unforgivable sin. And he paid the price. He, he's, uh, he's still, as far as I know, in, uh, in Russia. He was basically allowed to live in Russia because the Russians got a great deal of value from the things he released. Unless there is absolutely no way in the world to address your concern through the proper channels, and the only way to do it is to release it in a way that he, in, in this way he did. He went, he went to journalists and did this. Um, I, I would argue, and some people I'm sure will disagree, but I would argue that uh, to do this is extremely incautious and, in fact, endangers people. I would say the same thing. So it's overstepping what was done in the film, you think? Yeah. You talk about how somebody like Snowden, who's very divisive, what's interesting is doing some more research, um, William F. Buckley, the famous conservative commentator, uh, saw this. This was just a year or two before he passed on. Mm -hmm. He saw it and declared it, it was the greatest film he had ever seen. And he is he founded the National Review. Yes. On yes. that website, they did a list of the top 25 greatest conservative films ever made. And this film is number one. 
And so I was wondering about that. Does this film have a political spectrum? Is was this his film considered Republican, cons- or liberal, or conservative? Uh, it's certainly because I even I looked at the description. They didn't necessarily explain it come in that off. why it's number one. They said yeah. it's number one, but they didn't say why is this holds traditional yeah. conservative values. Well, I, I would say I would say the message of the film is certainly anti-communist and makes a very strong case that that system was so dehumanizing. Uh, to entire citizenries, but especially to people in power, that it had to come down. And uh, I would note with regard to the National Review, uh, it found its origins in the late 50s and early 60s during a period in which um, uh, concern with communism here was uh, intense, not only in regard to foreign communism, but foreign agents uh, communist agents within the United States itself. And uh, National Review was kind of a driving force um, in the uh, Whitaker Chambers' Alger Hiss um, episode, if you know anything about that. Um, Alger Hiss was an uh, employee of the State Department, and it turns out uh, uh, now we know positively he was also a Soviet agent. Uh, Whitaker Chambers, who became a dis, uh, disenchanted communist, uh, had worked with him f- for uh, several years in that capacity in their cell, their uh, uh, communist cell, um, doing various things, espionage, stealing secrets, uh, transmitting them to, to the Soviet Union. Um, and eventually he, he had a change of heart and he went to the government and informed on him. And there were highly public uh, hearings on this before HUAC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the lead investigator for this particular one actually was Richard Nixon. And uh, NRO uh, took up the cause, gave Whitaker Chambers a uh, platform from which to speak, right? So that explains why William F. Buckley, who founded National Review, was... Uh, very taken with this film yes. because it, it it does I think an effective job of uh, explaining to us that you know are somewhat of a remove from the uh, heyday of the Soviet states and the Eastern Bloc. Just what was at stake, and uh, we have to I think re- remind ourselves though that communism's still there. Uh, the Chinese are probably the most effective communist state right now. And they still do many things that the Soviet Union did, and they have done since their revolution, that uh, are concerning. Um, I think the only reason they're not quite as concerning is at least traditionally Chinese have been more insular and less, as it were, um, evangelistic uh, than the Soviet Union. There's a certain evangelistic core to communism. They want to make the world communist, right? Mm -hmm. And and foment uh, um, um, proletarian rebellions all across the world. But the Chinese were, even though they bought that, they were a little less inclined to, as it were, export it. Uh, At least in history. We kind of worry about it now. I mean, there's plenty of concerns with the present communist, or Chinese communist state. Uh, A lot of efforts they're making um, in that regard in all countries of the world right now. 
All right, so we're getting close to the end of my questions here. Is there anything else uh, we, we need to bring up before we sign off? I, I just want to, I, I really like the cinematography in this thing. It really helps drive home the... Yeah, uh, very, like that gray kind of, stru- you know, all those yes. structure buildings of the communist era. It's not, yeah. not appealing. It's just completely drab and gray. Yes, that and then also the use of uh, darkness and shadows whenever we see Wiesler doing his work. It's as if he's... He's, you know, hiding in the shadows. This little, so that he can, little room. Yeah, so that he can he can uh, spy on these people. Um, very effective. Um, the interplay between between him and the other characters, especially the other guy, he's splitting the time with. Now he's just that guy's such a goofball. He's like, hey, are they at it again? You know. Yeah, yeah. Mean? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. yeah, he's a funny character, and in a way, he's he's completely dehumanized. He doesn't really care about these people at all. He's not going to be touched by them at all. Mm-mm. And if you were going to expect any one of the, that pair of people to actually become more human, you, you would think it might be him. Yeah, because he is kind of a goofball. But uh, no, it's Wiesler. And that's a it's a that's kind of shocking, right? But that's kind of what gives the film its punch. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and the Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online through soundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I am Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. (laughs) 